The following is a presentation of Hawkeye's Mike LLC. Here's your ball game as of now. Fourth and two. Incomplete. Was looking for Fumagalli. Cole Fisher on the coverage. And Wisconsin has turned it over on downs out of timeouts with 36 seconds left. We knew it wouldn't be complicated coming in. It would be about some exotic scheme that was going to win it. When push came to shove and it was fourth and two, you know what it was? Man's a man. And can you execute? Can you get out of your break? Can you put the ball right where you need to put it? The answer, no for Wisconsin. And because of it, Kirk Ferentz is moving to 5-0. and Hello, everyone. This is John Patchett, and welcome to the football show from Hawkeye's Mike. This is our new Reporter's Notebook podcast. This week featuring Scott Docterman, who looks back at the Hawks' Big Ten road win at Wisconsin and previews this week's homecoming game versus Illinois. We also have a special guest this week, Randy Clarahan, the construction executive and general manager of Mortensen Construction, who talks about the new north end zone in Kinnick Stadium, plus the impact of jump around on Camp Randall Stadium. And you'll hear from the head coaches in this coming Saturday's game, Iowa's Kirk Ferentz and Bill Cubitt of Illinois. This Hawkeyes Mike podcast is one in a series of our weekly programs, which includes sports reporter Scott Docterman of the Gazette and Steve Batterson from the Quad City Times, plus our own Tyler Chumland. Game highlights are courtesy of ESPN with announcers Steve Levy and Brock Yard. We very much appreciate it and thank them. Hawkeyes Mike programs are brought to you in part by Prefence Hand Sanitizer. One application lasts all day. Try the hand sanitizer used by the Iowa Hawkeyes. And remember, the best defense is Prefence. And by TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal, building strong and safe in the Midwest for over 50 years. Iowa is trying to improve to 6-0 for the first time since 2009 this week. It would be the second time under Kirk Ferentz and the seventh time in Hawkeyes history. The Hawks are ranked 22nd in the AP poll. That's the first time since November of 2010 and 23rd in the coaches poll. And the Hawks are one win away from bowl eligibility. Illinois is off to its best start since 2011. The last two games, both wins versus Nebraska and versus Middle Tennessee were decided in the closing seconds. The only loss this season for the Illini was at North Carolina, 48-14. Illinois has defeated Nebraska, Middle Tennessee, Kent State, and Western Illinois. Illinois holds a 38-30-2 advantage in this series. The Hawkeyes beat Illinois last year in Champaign, 30-14. Iowa has won the last three meetings versus the Illini in Iowa City, dating back to 2003. But all-time, Illinois is 18-16-2 at Kinnick Stadium, and Saturday will be the Illini's first visit to Iowa City since 2007. Saturday will also be the first time since 1983 when Iowa and Illinois came into their game unbeaten in the Big Ten. Iowa has been a 10 to 12 point favorite all week long in Vegas. The Hawkeyes are celebrating homecoming this weekend. The Iowa record in homecoming games at Kinnick Stadium is 56, 42, and 5, including 5, 5, and 2 versus Illinois. The Hawkeyes have won five of their last six homecoming games 
including last year 45 to 29 over Indiana. Kirk Ferentz moved into ninth place in all-time wins as a Big Ten head coach after the victory last week at Wisconsin. In getting that win, he surpassed Wisconsin's Barry Alvarez. Ferentz is in his 17th year as Iowa head coach with a record of 120 and 85 with the Hawkeyes. Bill Cubitt is serving as interim head coach and offensive coordinator for the Illini after Tim Beckman was fired the week before the season started. The only changes on the Iowa depth chart this week for the Illinois game have Cole Croston and Germanic Smith at where injured starters Boone Myers and Tavon Smith would normally play. Next week, Iowa travels to Evanston for a significant Big Ten West showdown against Northwestern, while the Illini will have a bye week. Key games this week in the Big Ten, apart from Iowa-Illinois, it's another early separation Saturday for the Big Ten West. Northwestern travels to Michigan, Wisconsin is at Nebraska, and even the Minnesota at Purdue game has serious implications for the Gophers if they lose. The Big Ten has the same five teams ranked in both national polls this week. Ohio State is number one. The other four, Michigan State, Northwestern, Michigan, and Iowa, in that order. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. First time in the red zone, though, this afternoon. Fumble, loose ball, and it's still out. All sorts of problems with the exchange. Iowa says they have it. Micah Capoy, the right guard, the red shirt freshman, making the third start of his career, is going to get his big, probably size 15 at 330 pounds. Stepped on the foot of Stavi. Brutal break for Wisconsin. Self-inflicted pain. Let's hear from the head coaches in this coming Saturday's game. First up, Iowa head coach Kirk Ferentz, who talks about the Illinois football program, the impact of the firing of head coach Tim Beckman, the hiring of interim head coach Bill Cubitt, and the changes he sees in the Illini this season compared to last. All the, all the reasons for that, that's way out of my you know my uh, interest level or knowledge level. But uh, the bottom line is, yeah, it is. It's you never know what's going to happen when there's transition like that. You just never know. And and I think you know from an outsider looking in, they're very fortunate. Uh, I've got a lot of respect for Bill Cubitt, have had for a long time as a football coach, and certainly, you know, he brought a team in here and they, they beat our butts pretty good. You know, so my respect for him grew even more after that. You know, he's, a, he's an excellent coach, so to have a guy like that on staff who could, at least from the outset, looks like he seamlessly has just taken this thing and, and really uh, made it a positive for them. You know, that's a lot easier. It looks a lot easier than, than it is, you know, so that's a real credit to him. It's a credit to everybody there, their players, the rest of the coaching staff. Obviously, everybody's, you know, they're, they're right on board with them and they're playing well and yeah who knows what would have happened no, nobody knows that but I just know this uh, they're, they're a better football team than they were last November when you when you watch them on film they're just a, a better football team in every regard they're just uh, they're playing tighter cleaner the statistics reflect that you know, I talk about you know 500 yards a game defensively it's hard to beat anybody when you're doing that but now they're right at 300 and the other statistic that I think is significant is the turnovers you know last year we played them they were minus eight which is not a good number and right now they're plus four and that's that's a winning number so yeah I don't know what to attribute it to I'll just knows what we see on film from uh, last November and what we see on film right now from last week, and it's, it's a whole different uh, ball game now. Ferentz was asked more questions at his presser on Tuesday about the new Kirk and the impact of the new football operations center. The first was whether the new building has aided in making the coaching staff and players a more closely knit group. Yeah, you know, I, I think I tried to touch on that back in January. 
you know, maybe one downside of being somewhere, you know, you have a lot of things that uh, start getting on your plate a little bit. And certainly making this building become a reality took some time from everybody, not just me. Uh, everybody chipped in on that. You know, those kinds of things take you away from some of the things that uh, you really liked. I mean, the best part about coaching is being with our players and the staff, pure and simple. I mean, and I don't care if we're in uh, June, uh, which we're allowed to do that now. We weren't allowed to in the old days in the rules of insanity. But anyway, you know, so that, that's always been the best part of coaching is your time with players and, and the staff that you work with. And certainly in uh, 26 years at Iowa, that's that's the thing I've enjoyed the most. That's uh, by far number one. So, yeah, we just had that opportunity. But that that's something I think it was pretty evident to me in January, too, that, you know, somehow, some way, yeah, it's kind of like your family, you know, when you if you work a job that takes a lot of time, which a lot of jobs do, somehow, some way, you got to, you know, find more ways to have family time, et cetera. So, you know, you may not be able to golf or whatever it is that uh, people do. And it's, it's kind of the same way in football. It's kind of the same discussion. You get tugged in a lot of different directions. I think, you know, you just kind of learn. And that's, you know, this new me stuff, so really taking legs. So, yeah, the b- bottom line is I think when you've been somewhere for a long time, you, know, you see the peaks, you go through the peaks, you go through the valleys, and uh, you have a chance to really evaluate things, evolve, hopefully, make changes that are going to be productive. And uh, it's not like, you know, we're not home yet, obviously. We've played five ball games, but I think we're, we're you know, doing well right now. And the challenge is right now to get a, get a six good win. Then Kirk was asked whether the new building has got everybody involved in the program a bit more pumped up. I said that in uh, January, and, and I would double that now because we got the graphics up. fact, they're in there right now just about finishing everything up another uh, three or four days, I think. If you'd walk in the indoor facility, it looks very different. Uh, our hallways look very different. So there's no doubt about that. And I learned that uh, I went through Russ Jardine's building oh, five or six years ago. Russ took me through their building, and he just talked about the uh, the impact it had on, on the employees there, just how everybody uh, – it's uplifting. It's uplifting. I think it's symbolic also. You know, we've been here working hard, and if we're going to do the things we want to do in recruiting, this is really important. Just like I said, it was important in 1981. I know Coach Fry made that a point of uh, – of emphasis when he came here and uh, you know Bump did a great job and, and Gary and everybody's here worked really hard to help this become a reality too so yeah, the bottom line is if we're going to compete at the level we would like to compete at uh, it's never going to be easy but we're not going to be able to do it without great facilities without great fan support and all the things that we're able to enjoy here at Iowa and that's uh, that's why it's great to be here. Ference discusses some of the changes made since last January. You know I don't know that the changes have been radical or uh, the, all that extreme but it's just uh, it's really trying to you know bring back into focus what is it that really uh, makes you good or makes you bad? And uh, so that's not not to make light of the new the new part of things, but yeah, really the new thing is the old thing. It's it's like everything you do. I think in about anything that's important in life, you get back to the basics. Uh, you know, how, how do we build this thing back in the uh, late '90s, early 2000s? You know, what was that all about? What were we doing well? You know, what could we you know what did we learn from that? And then you know, how do we apply it to to our situation right now? It wasn't like it was a train wreck last year, but there's just things last year that you know you, you can't leave things out there on a continuum basis and we did too much of that so that really kind of pushed things forward it's not like we you know we haven't split atoms or anything like that it's just trying to do do everything a little bit better i know that sounds really simplistic but that's really what it gets down to and it's it's a lot easier to talk about than than really enact every day and that's you know right now that's but we have good buy-in right now that's that's a key thing on any any uh any football team you know we have good buy-in and kirk was asked whether the addition of his son brian to his coaching staff has helped in connecting with the younger generation of players well i don't know about it opened up uh, he and LeVar both have that, you know, have that role. They're both former players. They know the culture of the program and, and understand it thoroughly. And I think that's that's a good thing. You know, I joked about Brian a little bit, but, you know, I, I was half tempted, really. I mean, he, he's always been opinionated, in case you haven't noticed. He gets that from his mother. And and then I was half tempted to call his boss in New England and just find out, like, you know, does this guy do any work? Is he doing anything other than watching our films? Because he had a lot of opinions about what we were doing. Uh, I thought maybe it'd be good if he just kind of paid attention to, to what was going on up 
there. But to that point, you know, yeah, he's had opinions, but but this has really been a staff effort. So I think it's really, to me, the story is more about the growth of our, our program, our, our staff, and the cohesion of our staff. And we went through that back in, uh, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, while we were trying to get our feet on the ground a little bit. And it's the contrast I made, you know, when uh, Randy Walker went from Miami of Ohio to Northwestern, his whole staff went with him. So they were, they were a team already, you know, whereas, you know, we all came from different directions back in 99. And when everybody settled in, you know, I think we really grew into a great staff and I got I got to enjoy that as a head coach for quite some time. Now we're kind of, you know, going through that process again the last couple of years, but I really feel like things are, are meshing, they're gelling, just like a team has to. And uh, yeah, that's a big thing, but there's really no way to microwave that or speed speed it up. It just, you know, it's, it's part of life. Next, we hear from Illini head coach Bill Cubitt, who was asked about how big a task it is for his Illini offensive line to match up with Iowa's defensive line. Big. I mean, they're they're, they're really good. I think that when you look at them, they're they're big and they're physical. Uh, they play hard. I mean, they're they're an impressive group. You know, and I, I went back last year and watched it, watched our game last year, and we didn't handle it real well. So it's a, you know it's a it's a big challenge, but I think we're better equipped than we have been. You know, whether we can make it happen. You know, the, the whole depends, but you know, I, I think our kids will go out there and give everything they got. Cubit talks about the plethora of drop passes that have plagued the Illini this year. Now it's starting to become like almost the same guys. Now you got to straighten it out. So we'll get them on the jugs machine and, you know, they won't they won't leave the field until they catch 20 off the jugs machine. You know, we just keep on it, but it's positive. You know, I can run them. I can run them, do them but they're not catching the ball. If they're not catching the ball, they need practice catching the ball. So punishment doesn't really, that don't make any sense to me. You know, so get them on the jugs machine and concentrate for 20 plays. And, you know, and tomorrow do the exact same thing and just get them better. Cubit was asked about the difficulty scoring his team has had in the red zone, especially in the Nebraska game. Yeah, it, it gets the point. You know, when you get in the red zone, it's it's all it's a lot of matchups. You know, it's you know, my, you know where's my guy against her guy. What they did, you know, we we tried to uh, single uh, GMO out and uh, they double covered him uh, twice. So, you know, you had the you had the play call. You're figuring they're not going to do that with two tights, and they did. It's a smart move on their part. You know, and so we now we have two runs that, you know, we, we get something out of it, but we're not, you know. We didn't get enough on that uh, on that there. The uh, the one run that Chase got, you know, we had a the, the combo block went to the wrong linebacker. If he goes to the right linebacker, there's a seam he, he might score. You know, so they're the little things, you know, that that, that happened there. So you just keep on, you just got to keep on working, find a, find a way. You know, I think each week's a little bit different about, you know, your matchups. And Coach Cubitt was asked if his team is talking about becoming bowl eligible and expectations for this year's squad. I'm just so I'm worried, worried about tonight's practice. And I think that comes with a lot of experience, you know, that I've been through. You know, never look, never look past the next day. Just, just go to the next one. That I haven't heard that one bit at all in there. And if it is, you're probably setting your expectations probably a little bit low. We need to take care of Iowa. By, by Iowa, I can tell them you win the games on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday, and Friday. All right, then it becomes a little bit easier on on Saturday because you were prepared. And that's that's kind of all we talk about, and that's that's what we call the process. And it, it's been working pretty well. You know, the biggest thing is our kids. You know, and I think our kids they 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 believe in what we're doing. When you believe in what you you're doing okay and everybody's in the same uh, you know in the same mindset then you got you give yourself a chance if you don't that's why I keep on talking about the team on Saturday morning uh, 
it, every, every, it's about the team. That's not about you. And we have this together, and she'll hear our kids say it again. That's the last thing I talk about right before we leave the hotel. And they're buying in, you know, and when you buy in, there's a lot of good things that can happen. There's a lot of talented teams that can't win, and there's a reason. And there's a lot of teams that just have average talent, and they win, there's a reason. And that's been my biggest thing. You know, it's more the mental preparation that I'm, that I'm trying to get through. One for five on third down conversions. Wisconsin needs to pick that up. And Stobby tried to drop it in, and it's intercepted. It's Desmond King and his second interception of the game, fifth of the season to take over the Big Ten lead. King, who had two interceptions earlier against Pittsburgh, now has two against Wisconsin. Can't do it. Senior quarterbacks now made three critical mistakes. Iowa made them pay earlier, and they do it again here in the third. Really control the game. How many things have you touched today? Hmm? Ooh, a puppy. <laughs> How many places have your hands been? Ooh, a keyboard. 24-hour hand sanitizer protection just makes sense. Prefins, a silica-based hand sanitizer protects your hands all day. Stays on. Up to 10 washings. Moisturizes. Alcohol-free. And safe for the kids. So go ahead. Touch anything and everything. Ooh, a toilet. Prefins. Keep your hands germ-free all day. <laughs> Time now for our weekly Reporter's Notebook show this week with Scott Docterman. You can read Scott's articles in the Gazette and online at gazette.com and in his blog, Doc's Office. You can also follow Scott on Twitter at Scott Docterman. Scott looks back at the Wisconsin game, previews Saturday's game against Illinois, and talks some Big Ten. Scott, a huge win last Saturday in Madison. So before we talk about the Iowa-Illinois game, as usual, let's get your closing thoughts on the Hawkeyes' big win over the Badgers. I think it was as big a win as Iowa's had in the last five years. And part of it is because they haven't beaten the Badgers in that period of time. But then you look at where the program is, and it seems like every single win that Iowa's had over this year has been qualified by people still failing to buy in. You know, well... It's just Iowa State's not very good. It's just an FCS team. Pitt's got a new coach. North Texas isn't very good. On and on. And then, but going to Madison and beating the Badgers at Camp Randall Stadium the way they did, I think validated that this team is pretty good. And I and the fans that have just tried to hedge their their loyalties, if you will, for the last uh, you know couple of weeks now can kind of buy in because I think they're legitimate. It's not a quarterback. I mean, you know, T.J. Beathard had a rough day. Joe Schultz made a million dollars a year more <laughs> based on that performance for Wisconsin. Yet it was Iowa's defense that came to shine. It, it's a collective team effort. To win there, as you know, just is, uh, is a monumental task for most teams. I think they've lost, what, eight times in the last 11 years, and three of them were to Iowa. To, to go there to win, to be 5-0, and to get ranked for the first time in five years, I think shows this program clearly is back to where it wants to be. And uh, in going forward, you got to like its chances. Of, uh, of doing some good things this year. A little bit of symmetry here. That was the Hawkeyes' fewest points scored in a win since Iowa defeated Illinois 10-6 to in 2007. And it's the last time the Hawks won a game without any points in the second half since a Minnesota game in 2007. As you said, this game was really about the defense, but Jordan Canzeri did enough to really make a difference in Iowa's offense because Beathard certainly didn't have his best day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 125 yards right 
rushing. And, and to me, it was almost the method with which they did it. I mean, they largely did it with inside zones or inside powers where uh, they relied so heavily on their center and two guards. And on offense, to me, those were the players of the game, Austin Blythe, Jordan Walsh, and then the combination of Sean Welsh and uh, James Daniels. They routinely, in the running game, by the time Kanzari got the ball, had their defender pushed back three yards. And so you automatically created almost a pocket beyond the line of scrimmage for Kanzari to find the hole. And he's very quick and agile and gets to the hole, and he's got kind of ant strength, so he's able to make a finishing blow and, and kind of go forward. So I, I think it's easy to overlook the offensive line, but in this case, the more I looked back, the more I realized, wow, what a game that they played interior. So, uh, and Jordan Kanzari just seems to, you know, everybody's very, everybody's concerned about, mainly about his size and durability, but he keeps proving that he's a, a very capable 20-carry back, and, and uh, until LaShawn Daniels can kind of get back to either full health or playing with the reckless abandon that maybe he should be, you know, Jordan Kanzari's our guy, and I don't think anybody should have to apologize for that. I think it was a, made some difference, the fact that Tavon Smith missed that game as well, so you had a true freshman wide receiver starting in his place, and you know, that's going to take a little time for Beathard and him to click as well. Yeah, I mean, he got targeted four times. Beathard overthrew him uh, at least once the end zone, probably should have, and maybe if it was Devon Smith, maybe he gives his receiver a little bit more of an opportunity to make a play on that. Just one long pass on the right sideline where Germany Smith kind of quit one and then and then got, uh, and, and Beathard threw a pass to him, and in some respects, it's like, okay, you need to keep running with this guy. This guy, is, this guy could throw it 60 yards down the field with a flick of a wrist. So, but other than that, I mean, that it's a it's a one of those games where for somebody like that, just getting through it. You're on the road. You're get your first start. You're playing against a good defense, veteran defensive back. He needed to to work through that. And this week against Illinois, you know, the challenge isn't quite as quite as high. And certainly being at home, I think you'll have a a better opportunity to make plays. Now, the last thought on the Wisconsin game, I would have never predicted that the Badgers at Camp Randall Stadium would have four turnovers, and they were critical in that game. And the Hawkeyes have scored 41 points already this season off of turnovers. Yeah, and I think the most important one was maybe one they didn't score on, and that was when you know Wisconsin had it right at the goal line there on one yard to go, and you saw you know Iowa and its goal line defense, and Nate Meyer, who's a, traditionally an undersized defensive end, they positioned him in the AA gap right between the guard and center because of his quickness and his explosiveness. And what he was able to do was, on that fumble, was knife through the A-gap. And he, his explosion was just enough to kind of force Wisconsin's right guard to step on Joel Stave's foot, which in turn disrupted the handoff, forced a fumble. Iowa's faith to Cacti was able to recover at the five-yard line, and it squelched Wisconsin's only real, well, best great uh, threat there in the second half. I mean, if that doesn't happen, I'm sh- I think the Badgers end up scoring a touchdown, and it's likely that Wisconsin wins that game. So, I mean, you know, just the smallest of details, you know, and then, of course, in having a turnover like that at the goal line was crucial to Iowa's success. Looking ahead now to this coming Saturday, Iowa's 5-0 and for the first time since 2009, trying to go 6-0 and for the first time since 2009. And a bit of a surprise, the Illini are 4-1 and and want to know in the Big Ten after beating Nebraska last week, that's best start for Illinois since 2011. And, of course, they have to have had some major impact with the turmoil surrounding their head coach, Tim Beckman, who was fired right before the season started, replaced now with offensive coordinator Bill Cubitt, who had a solid record as a head coach at Western Michigan, and in fact beat 
Iowa in Kinnick Stadium. Let's look at the matchup between Iowa's defense and Illinois' offense. As we know and has been discussed a lot, the Hawkeyes have been terrific in rushing defense. They're averaging, giving up only 84.4 yards per game. That's second in the Big Ten, 11th nationally, and they still haven't allowed a rushing touchdown all season. I don't expect Illinois to run the ball up the middle on Iowa. First of all, Josh Ferguson is out for the game. Uh, You know, one of their best running backs, really, they've ever had. I mean, all-purpose yards. He's got almost 4,000 yards in his career. Uh, Really quick back. Very underrated back. And, you know, he hurt his shoulder last week against Nebraska. So I don't expect him to, uh, you know, first of all, he's not going to play. And then Iowa is so stout up the middle that I think that would be kind of running into a wall. I mean, you're looking at a team in Illinois that hasn't played against many good defenses, you know, stopping the run, and yet ranked 91st in the country and averaged about 155 yards. So I expect Illinois to try to take advantage of Iowa laterally, the way other teams had in the past. Now, other uh, Wisconsin even, to some extent, gave up running the ball to the middle and tried to go wide a few times, and that didn't work. You could tell that Iowa in the offseason had really uh, focused on the jet sweep and focused on setting the edge and rallying to the football. And, and so what we saw last week against Wisconsin, you know, Iowa is good enough on in that area that, that other teams have to be cognizant of that. Now, you can't totally shut down the run if you're uh, Illinois. You're going to have to try to do it. And with Keyshawn Vaughn, I mean, he's a four-star kid. He's really quick and strong. I mean, he's he's a guy I think is going to play at the next level, even though he's only a true freshman. So right now, I think, uh, you know, what, what they're going to try to do is beat Iowa with the pass. And that is a uh, that is an area where Iowa could be a little bit susceptible, mainly because of Wes Lunt. Uh, he may have the best pure arm of any player in the Big Ten. I mean, he's 6'5". He can fling it all over the field. He can hit guys drive wherever they are, the long out, the deep pass. That's a really dangerous situation for Iowa. Geronimo Allison is one of the better wide receivers in the Big Ten. But beyond that, without Mike Dudick, who hurt his knee in, in the spring, you know, they're still struggling with uh, underneath routes, and they're still struggling a lot when it comes to catching the football. Going into last week's games, I think they had 26 drops. It was just incredible how many drops that Illinois had. And last week, they had a drop touchdown pass to the end zone, a couple other drops in the first half when Illinois was really moving the football. So I like Iowa in this regard. Not only will they be able to stop the run and probably prevent a lot of big plays in the running game, but they have maybe the best cornerback tandem in the Big Ten. And Geronimo Allison will get some plays. Wes Lunt will make some plays. But by and large, I think Iowa was able to stifle that. Yeah, and Desmond King's two picks last week. He was named co-Big Ten Defensive Player of the Week. He's uh, leading the Big Ten in that regard. What Illinois would have to do against Iowa is basically turn a short passing game, screen game, swing game out of the backfield into somewhat of a substitute for the running game. And as I said, Keyshawn Vaughn is, is a tremendous athlete. I mean, this is a guy that if you saw him for Iowa, everybody would go, wow, this guy's going to be a star. He's that good. But Iowa, the way they rally to the football, I think that, you know, you might be seeing those passes for three, four, five yards substitute the running game. Because going downfield, as you mentioned, Desmond King, you know, Jim Thorpe, winner of the, you know, his defensive back of the week, two interceptions, critical interceptions, you know, five on the year. And, and you know, and doing it against Pitt a couple weeks ago, I mean, he's going against maybe the best wide receiver in the country, Tyler Boyd. So, you know, this guy is, they're going to struggle to go against him. And, and you know, Allison may be able to catch a uh, pass or two, but if uh, he runs the wrong route or if he and Lunt are on the wrong page, I expect Desmond King to certainly take advantage of that. Yeah, Iowa fans shouldn't be too comfortable if the lead is fairly tight going in and, and later in 
in the fourth quarter because Lund has led the Illini to two uh, comebacks in the last seconds late in the fourth quarter of the last two weeks against Nebraska last week, and, and they had to do that to win against Middle Tennessee the week before. They have a lot of confidence in West Lund the way Iowa does in C.J. Beathard, and, and it, it, again, his, his uh, strengths are obvious. I mean, he can really move the ball down the field. He has got a great arm. Uh, they like his toughness. He's a pocket guy. He doesn't run very well, but if Iowa doesn't generate a pass rush, and at times it's hit and miss, then he's going to find time to get the ball to his receivers. He made plays in the fourth quarter against Nebraska when they're down 13 to nothing. You know, in that fourth quarter, he was 8 of 18 for 122 yards and two touchdowns. On the final drive, when they had the ball, you know, inside their own 30 with 51 seconds left, his first two passes go for 15 and then 50 yards. So they have a lot of confidence in him. However, in Nebraska, has the worst pass defense in the country. They're 128, and Middle Tennessee is kind of a middle-of-the-road team. Iowa is a lot better than both of those teams, probably combined in that regard. But that said, you know, it's something that they have to be, they have to worry about if they're close, if Illinois has the ball late and it's a touchdown game or something like that, then I think he's capable of bringing them back, no doubt. Let's uh, turn the page, look at Iowa's offense against Illinois' defense. Illinois' defense is much better this year over last season, and they have some pretty decent high national rankings in a number of defensive categories and they've got three linebackers that are very, very good. Yeah, do. Uh, Mason Monheim is a really talented inside linebacker, veteran guy, tough. You know, they've done some different things. I mean, traditionally or last couple of years under Tim Beckman and now Bill Cubitt, they've had, you know, kind of a hybrid three. Sometimes they'll go three, sometimes they'll go four down line. And this week they tended to go more four, three. And it's kind of looked similar to Iowa. You know, they're a little more out at the point of attack than they have been. They don't really generate much of a pass rush. That's that's kind of an issue for them. I think they're last in the Big Ten in sacks, only have five on the year right now, and that's uh, uh, you know a challenge for them to go against Iowa now, especially up the middle. You know where a lot of the pressure is felt. Iowa's kind of struggled a little bit on the edge with two, with new tackles, but this is not the team. This uh, this is going to feel I hate to say it, but a little bit more like a picnic for the offensive line compared to what they've had to deal with against with. Wisconsin, Pittsburgh, and, you know, and even Iowa State for a while there. So Illinois is much improved, but I think at times you got to look back at the level of competition. You know, they they had a nice game against Nebraska, and not that I want dismi- to uh, diminish their results, but that was in a crazy, windy game, and that that's when offense tends to really struggle more than any kind of element. It, the wind really affects that, and then you know their other wins were it's Western Illinois, you know Kent State, I believe, and then also. So Middle Tennessee State. So and when they played North Carolina State, the team did give up 48 points. So not that it's fool's gold. I do believe they're playing better. They're more consistent. They're rallying the football much better. Uh, they do struggle a little bit with angles on defense and containing the outside. But that said, I you know I think this is an area where Iowa has a real chance to exploit their weaknesses. We talk a lot about Iowa's effectiveness this year with uh, turnovers and picks, but the Illini are tied with the Hawkeyes with seven interceptions through its first five games, and Illinois defensive back Taylor Burton is tied for second in the Big Ten with three picks. They do have good athletes in the secondary, absolutely, and and, and D'Angelo Bentley is one of the better defensive backs you'll find. I mean, you know, he really, you know, shut down uh, Jordan Westerkamp last week, you know, and limited him to one catch for minus one yard. I mean, he's to me, he's a guy that, uh, you know, you've got to be cognizant of him, and the passing game to me is a concern for Iowa because as we talked earlier, without Tavon Smith for a few weeks. They don't have a consistent threat to 
stretches the field. You know, Germanic Smith's new. He's barely played. And if he can, you know, if he can make a play or two, I think it changes that. And then you look at the possession receiver, you know, Matt Vandenberg, who's made a lot of catches, but he's a lot like Lester Camp. He's not necessarily a deep threat. He's just a very consistent uh, pass catcher. So I was going to need to get more out of the passing game than what they showed last week. They're going to have a little more time because the pass rush isn't nearly what it is was against Wisconsin. But they're going to have to make plays against some, you know, pretty decent defensive backs and great athletes. So where I think I, what Iowa has to do is they have to get Germany Smith involved out of the X receiver. That's just something that split end needs to, to break the ball down the field. If they can get one, even one big play out of that position, I think it can change the complexity of the game. Well, Beathard now is 6-0 and as a starter. Three wins on the road, three at home. The weather forecast Saturday in Iowa City is good, so we shouldn't have the wind issues that you saw last week in Madison and that they had down in Champaign last Saturday. You mentioned Matt Vandenberg. He's been nothing but money, especially on key third down plays. Yeah, he is. He's their, he's their go-to guy on third down because a lot of times he's working either out of the slot or he's, he's just finding ways to get open. And that's an underrated thing. I mean, people don't look at that as much. They look at both of this because he doesn't really make a lot of yards after the catch. But, you know, if you want to keep the chains moving, that's the most important thing. And, and uh, you know, to me, this whole season, and we'll go back to what he did against Iowa State. Fourth quarter, he had four catches, all for first down. That was crucial. And he's, uh, you know, in the first half when Iowa was moving the ball against Wisconsin, he, he was covered really well and still came down with the ball. And some of that's the faith that they have in T.J. Beathard to push the ball there. But, but that's also the faith that they have in Matt Vandenberg to make those kind of plays. So, you know, that's a key component. They just need something more from a different one or two more wide receivers. The tight ends are good. I think Jake Doozy probably gets a chance to play a little bit more. George Kittle is coming into his own a little bit as a as a, as a tight end, getting the ball more in space, but they need something more from the wide receivers. Jacob Hilliard dropped a pass last week. They had four targets to Sherman Smith, no completions. I think that's a really important step for this program right now in replacing Tavon Smith. Vandenberg has had at least six catches in four of the five games. He's now second in the Big Ten with 31 catches. You mentioned the tight ends. I wonder if this might be a game because of the matchups where you might see more game planning targeted passes at Iowa's tight end. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this is something that where Iowa is, they're going to exploit some of these matchups. And, and uh, you know, without the pressure of the pass rush, and they didn't do a very good job containing Joe Schobert last week, but, um, you know, they'll be able to get their tight ends out more in routes. And I expect that to happen. Uh, they Hendrick Freer Coble, he was targeted on the goal line, you know, for, on a fourth down play. Didn't quite make the inside move on Michael Caputo, who's a really good safety. You know, they're going to, I'm sure they're going to get more involved. George Kittle now has two touchdowns in consecutive weeks. Jake Doozy, we've seen what he can do. It's just a matter of can he do it in, you know, in healthy fashion. But they're going to need a, an extra, they're going to need that tight end coming out. I mean, at some point, I wouldn't be surprised to see him running, you know, the, the, the three wide receiver sets with, with uh, tight end playing a wide receiver position in the slot. So I expect this to be a game where they're heavily utilized. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be a few, if any, teams that contain Joe Schobert this year. You'd have to think uh, Kanzari would have a big game Saturday, and wonder if we'll see a little bit more of Derek Mitchell as he comes back from an injury since he missed the Wisconsin game. I, I think this is, this is an important game for whether it's LaShawn Daniels or, or Derek Mitchell. I mean, they need, they, uh, you know, that secondary runner, and, you, you know, you don't want to look ahead. You have to win the game in front of you, and, and Illinois poses enough of a threat that you just can't hold anything back. But in a perfect world for Iowa, you'd want to 
get either LaShawn Daniels or Derek Mitchell involved in the game at a critical juncture on an equal level with Jordan Canzeri because the next week's game is going to be a physical grind against Northwestern. So I think right now you just you have to make sure you get that secondary running back in there. And LaShawn Daniels has still been a little bit tentative. He's still not quite hitting the hole the way he should be. At times in the second half, he looked a little bit better, but he's not as reliable as Canzeri. And Derek Mitchell, all we can really go on is what the coaches have told us. And he's been injured twice, you know, had a, an issue that was off the field apparently early in the season. So he has proving no, proven nothing. And then you look at Akron Wadley, who I do think has a lot of talent, but he's fumbled in the football. So I, I think in, in a perfect world for Iowa, whether it's just the way the game's flow set or that they have enough of a lead that they can afford to do this, I think getting a, a secondary running back in there for 10-plus carries would be really important. After this break, Scott talks special teams and the Big Ten. Are you or your local Iowa company looking for a new roof or sheet metal work? TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal specializes in low-slope commercial and industrial roofing and sheet metal. Building strong and safe in the Midwest for over 50 years, TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal, located in Ely, Iowa, just south of Cedar Rapids, provides strong, expert customer service and the best quality fit for you, their customer. For a free estimate, give TNK a call at 319-848-4191 or toll-free at 1-800-383-7663. You can also visit their brand new website at tkroofing.com. TNK Roofing and Sheet Metal, your home for all your low slope roofing systems. Give them a call today. Again, 319 848 4191 or toll free at 1 800 383 7663. Talking special teams for a couple of minutes. Iowa's have been very solid by and large. Dylan Kidd may be the surprise for the Hawkeyes. I think people expected Marshall Kane to be good. But Illinois' special teams appear to be far better than they have been the last couple of years. And one of the odd stats there is they're one of four teams with three block kicks already this season. Two block punts. Both of those were returned for touchdowns and, and a blocked field goal this season. Yeah, they've got uh, they've got some good athletes. I, they have a a lot. Of, they do a lot of pressure in in uh, punt block. You can see it immediately. And Iowa's already had one block against Pittsburgh, so they're going to have to be cognizant of that. If Dylan King can get the ball off, I think they'll be okay. Although D'Angelo Bentley is is a pretty good returner, but Illinois is also the worst team in not only in the Big Ten but one of the worst in the country when it comes to punting at an average of 31 yards per return. So I think Iowa's got a real advantage there in returning uh, punts and and uh, you know with Desmond King and, and at some point he's going to break one whether it's in the he's, his return yardage as a whole is pretty good obviously in, in interceptions and then a, you know a punt and kick return so I expect him to break one and this might be the week I mean if Illinois punter thinks he's having a good day uh, with the win maybe he'll overkick the coverage and give him a chance so Marshall Kane not a real concern yet but you know kind of I uh, raise your eyebrows a little bit you know he missed an extra point against North Texas but 
but you know it was only the ninth extra point or so, or it's eighth that he had to try to kick. And then, but he missed a short field goal last week, and that's a real dangerous uh, situation because you start to mess with your head a little bit. So you know, I, I don't expect that to be a lingering problem, but it's just something that after being so automatic to miss one, I think it was from 27 yards, is one that's like, oh really, what's going on there? And then Iowa has done a much better job at covering kicks, both from the kickoff and, and punt return perspective. So Illinois, I think if you could contain their pump block, just get the ball off your foot and do it as good as you can, I think they'll be fine. Kane's been so good all year long at touchbacks. And then, as you mentioned, Desmond King, other than the first half of the Iowa State game, has just got better and better each game, both in punt and kickoff returns. Yeah, he's going to break one at some point. It could be this week. You can look at a couple of those games, really at the at the vital parts of the Iowa State and Pittsburgh games. He helped turn the game around with a couple of his returns. One was the punt return against Iowa State that he was able to get it to midfield on the game-winning touchdown drive. I mean, they scored later, too, but able to do that, plus have that interception. And then against Pittsburgh, you know, they had that kind of squib kick that went down inside the 10, and it was tough to field, but then he was able to get it out to the 30, which enabled Iowa to move the ball up the field with under a minute to, to kick the monstrous 57-yarder at the, at the whistle. Before we get your keys and prediction for this game, just a couple of moments on the Big Ten. We talked last week about last Saturday being, to some degree, a separation Saturday for the Big Ten West. This coming weekend, it's the same thing. Northwestern has to go to play at Michigan before the Hawkeyes go up there next week in Evanston. And the Wisconsin-Nebraska loser is probably completely out of the equation in the Big Ten title race. Nebraska, if they go into losing Illinois and then Wisconsin at home, I don't see them having much of an opportunity to win six straight because that would put them two and four overall. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of hope to try to get back to uh, some sort of a tie-breaking scenario. I think Wisconsin's a little bit better, but playing a desperate team and with a pretty good quarterback in Nebraska, I I think that's going to be a really interesting game. To me, you know, Michigan Northwestern is old school Big Ten football. Two tremendous defenses. You know, I like Northwestern has some good skilled people, a really good running back. I think Michigan on offense is getting better, moving the ball more effectively with uh, former Iowa quarterback Jake Rudock. He's decided, you know, he's kind of playing the way that they wanted to play and finally got there. And then, and you can't undersell this Iowa-Illinois matchup either. I mean, both teams are 1-0 and in the Big Ten, and whoever wins, I mean, if you're if you're Illinois and you, you can beat Nebraska and Iowa consecutively, you've got to feel pretty good about yourself being 5-1, and one, the interim coach, and you know, putting themselves in that position. Likewise, if you're Iowa, if you take care of business and beat, you know, Wisconsin on the road and Illinois at home, you've got to like your outlook too. So I think there's a lot of separation that could take place, as you said. And I do think that the, uh, you know, next week's battle, of course, Iowa and Northwestern, especially if both teams win this week, could be set up potentially as, as a de facto Big Ten West title game. So your prediction for this Saturday, Iowa versus Illinois. I like Iowa because uh, I don't I don't think Illinois can run the football and you can't rely on the pass. Iowa has two really good defensive ends and Drew Lott and Nate Meyer who get after the quarterback and they've got two really good corners so you can't really avoid it if Iowa doesn't get its pass rush that. I think Illinois is going to make plays. They're, they've got a good enough quarterback. They're going to get the ball down on the field. They may even score a couple of touchdowns that way. Iowa runs the football effectively. Illinois, last year they ran for 300 yards on Illinois. I expect, you know, they're not quite that bad of course. This year they've actually played pretty well but not quite that good. So I like Iowa to win. I like Iowa to win fairly comfortably somewhere in the neighborhood of 31 to 20. They'd be 6-0 and uh, be a bowl eligible.
basketball here in the first six games. <laughs> my kind of team, Charlie. It's my kind of team. It has been five years since Iowa won a road game against a nationally ranked team. You'll see prettier football, but as far as a group that's together, that believes they're different than their predecessors, look out, Big Ten West. It's going to do nothing but instill a whole bunch of confidence in those Hawkeyes. How about that homecoming next week for Iowa? Get Illinois. Hawkeyes are going home with a Heartland Trophy and a 5-0 record. They win in Madison. Beat Wisconsin on opening day in the Big Ten. Our special guest in this week's show is Randy Clarahan. Randy is the construction executive and general manager of Mortensen Construction in Iowa. Mortensen is currently overseeing the building of the new Hancher Auditorium, the new School of Music in downtown Iowa City, the new Museum of Art also in downtown, and is coordinating the pre-construction phase of the new North End Zone at Kinnick Stadium. We wanted to give you an update on the new Kinnick project and, just for the fun of it, also talk a bit about the structural impact and safety of Jump Around at Camp Randall Stadium in Madison. Randy, we want to talk just briefly today about the new Kinnick North End Zone project. But before we do that, you and I had an interesting discussion prior to taping this segment about the whole Jump Around thing up at Camp Randall Stadium, which again last Saturday, it happens every home game. The several times that I've been at games or in the press box up there, the press box itself literally seems, at least to me, to be swaying back and forth a good couple of feet. It reminds me very much of the two earthquakes I've been in out in California where I was in upper floors of hotels and and seeing the buildings out there shake. But as we all know, in California, buildings are designed and engineered and built with earthquake resistance in mind. Is that the same situation in the Midwest? All across the country, there's different zones, earthquake zones. And what some people may or may not realize is outside of Southern California, the second largest earthquake zone is actually just south of St. Louis. And uh, even in Iowa, there's a designation for earthquake zone one out of a total of eight designations. So in design, they take, structurally, they take the earthquake zones into consideration. Yes, it's a factor. It's not a determining factor when you design buildings in Iowa or Wisconsin, but there is a factor included in the design. Yeah, I forgot to mention, I've been through two earthquakes in Iowa too. Let's just talk about that. The UW officials have repeatedly said the Camp Randall Stadium, which is a two-tiered stadium on the east and west sides, and then, of course, you have the eight-story press box, has been examined and re-examined and is structurally safe to withstand 75,000 people jumping up and down for about two and a half minutes. My question is, if, if you were involved in rehabbing their stadium or in designing a stadium with something like that in mind, how often would you test that kind of thing and how would you test it? Testing now actually happens in the design stage and it almost happens virtually. There's great programs now that allow structural engineers to assume a certain amount of deflection or movement. Then the size of the steel concrete connections are designed accordingly. I'll use an example, John, of um, we're building Hancher Auditorium right now and those that are familiar with the new design can see a, a large 
overhang that that uh, extends out to the south, and it's actually designed to uh, deflect once we get all the roofing material on four to six inches. There's an unofficial test of going out to the tip and bouncing up and down and recognizing that there's a little bit of movement there that it's designed for. But most of the real testing happens during the actual construction of uh, deflecting the beams and making sure that they don't deflect any further than they're designed to deflect. So how would the UW officials go about testing the existing structure there and claim it's still safe? They'll do what they call dynamic testing and uh, impose a load, an uneven load on certain su- certain sections or steel members. And then they'll, they'll put little sensors on the connections, whether it's a welded connection or a bolted connection. And then they'll see if during that movement, if there's any degradation of that weld, that bolt, that connection. So there's sensors you can put on members to see what kind of movement happens. There's a lot of great forensic structural engineering firms now in the country that do that professionally. So there's a method to do it. And uh, as we talked, I think it was about 10 years ago, they did a pretty exhaustive study to determine was it really designed for the jump around. And apparently the study came back and said it is and it's safe. And then what they'll do regularly, much like bridge construction, there are regularly maintenance specs checks on those connections. The steel is not going to fail unless there's a fire or something that's going to damage the actual structure where, where they need to continue to check and maintain is the welded, bolted connections, just like you would check bridges in the Midwest to make sure that those connections are sound. And how much does age impact that? How much deterioration goes on over time? You know, it, that's a great question. The, the uh, You know, it really kind of de- depends on the environment. If you're in Southern California and there's no salt or, you know, a pretty good environment and, and uh, snow and, and other things, then, then it's less. In the environment that we're in, you really need to check it probably a little more regularly. So I'm sure there's checks that, that happen whenever there's, you know, particularly exposed steel. You know, and some of these older structures have the structure up underneath exposed and uh, A, it's easier to check the steel, but uh, it's subject to some environmental conditions that you've got to check. Sort of slightly off topic. So I'm assuming it's safe to say they wouldn't allow jump around in the upper deck at Wrigley Field? (laughs) That's a great question, and I would say they would frown on that. (laughs) We appreciate that input. I still don't think it's safe personally, so it's not my favorite uh, (laughs) moments in covering a football game up there. A few weeks ago, the Board of Regents and the Athletic Department of Iowa announced a proposed major renovation of the north end zone seating at Kinnick Stadium, and Mortensen has been retained, at least in some of the pre-construction phases of that project. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, I'd love to. Well, we've got history, Mortensen does, with Kinnick Stadium back in 0405 when the major renovation took place for the new press box, for the south end zone, for the locker room facilities. Mortensen successfully delivered that project, and it was a great project. For us. So we were approached that they wanted to repeat that success for the north end zone. So we've been retained to, to support them in the pre-construction phase and the planning stage. Uh, it's a unique project, John, because whereas the 0405 took place over two seasons, in the north end zone, it's unique because you will start construction probably the, the moment the last home game is played, and it needs to be up and operational by August. So you've got a time window of roughly December 
1st to August 1st to uh, complete a significant renovation. That includes demolition. That includes all the work that's necessary to get that up and operational. So we're very excited. It's going to be a fantastic design, great enhancement to the fan experience for some on-field level seating, some clubhouse, concourse, restrooms, concessions, and a great viewing experience. So it's going to be a fantastic project. And this will be a complete teardown of the existing north side structure? Everything goes. Everything goes. What, what's unique about it, when, when the uh, south end zone was done, there, actually they're two very different structures. south end zone was more of a, a simple structural steel structure that came down rel- relatively easy. North end zone is a, a full concrete design structure and uh, with steel. So it'll probably come down a little tougher, but uh, that whole end zone comes down and actually one of the, it will actually tie into the skywalk system that feeds the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics and the uh, transportation center. Is there a goal stated in terms of how that will impact the overall seating capacity? The, the goal is to make sure that, that we retain the seating to ensure that Kinnick has capacity of at least 70,000 fans. The design has taken that into consideration and is working very hard to make sure that, that those enhancements don't impede the, the entire overall level and uh, number of seats available. So it's, it's been a challenge because you only have so much space to work with and by adding uh, club level seating and you know different amenities you've got to get creative with where those seats go but we've got a great design team that's working on it so we're confident that they're going to be able to pull that off i suppose in the context of the bigger picture this is not very significant but the athletic department has spent a fair amount of money on the new video boards the ribbon video the sound system and to the degree there's at least two of those located in the north end zone will those be retained or will they be destroyed in the teardown phase and and rebuilt from scratch? Another good question, and the short answer is they will be retained. So very quickly and very efficiently and very carefully, we will be removing those, storing those, packing those up. They may get new faces to to match the new design, but the essence of the investment in the video board, scoreboard, and the ribbon video is going to be retained. What's the projected cost range for all of that work? I, I wish I could give you an absolute right now you know they're targeting I think the papers may have said 40 to 50 million dollars and that's still the goal for the uh, construction value of the project. Timeline? Timeline is start construction after the 2016 season and complete before the 2017 season starts. Will it be a build-up that will almost make that north end zone sort of a tie into the stadium almost like a closed off horseshoe? It will. It will have more of a bowl feel to it on that end and uh, you know have a little more connectivity to both the east and west fan experience so they're still working out the details of how they do that but that's certainly one of the intents so they're not going to try it after this year no i mean the 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 problem with it is because it's such a short time frame the amount of planning i mean we're going to have all the steel done all the prefabrication of anything that can be done and panelized ready to go because it's such a short time frame plus of course december through july you've got a winter to work with and uh there's very little time to waste. So there just wasn't enough time to get all the planning and the pre-construction activities done to, to make it work this year. Will it be your the Mortensen, the group that does the stadium work around the country? Will those people be coming in to actually do some of this stuff? Yeah, so it, it's going to be, uh, we call it an internal joint venture. So we're going to be bringing in the expertise from our national projects group or sports group, along with our local resources that a number of team members that worked on the Kinnick Stadium renovations in 0405 are actually 
actually still down here with us in Iowa. So it'll be a combination of our local resources with some amount of injection of our national project group expertise. Great story. Compelling and rich. You don't really have a choice. You almost have to jump around because the building is swaying. Camp Randall on the move. They just did the traditional jump around. It's been going on here since 1998 between the third and fourth quarters. Now, that's one of the neat traditions. There's only one of them, right? They're the only ones to do it. Very hard to find individual traditions where no one else copies it or does that. And they got that here at Camp Randall. Just a reminder, you can participate in our shows by offering your own comments and opinions on the Hawkeyes. The toll-free hotline is available 24 hours a day. Call 866-74-HAWKS and make your voice heard. Visit HawkeyesMike.com, go to the News and Events section, and check the links for up-to-date information on Iowa games, TV channels, team schedules, and more. You can subscribe to all Hawkeyes Mike podcasts through iTunes. And you can follow Hawkeyes Mike on Twitter, Tumblr, Medium, and Facebook. Also be sure to check out all of the Hawkeye stories, features, and blogs in the Gazette and the Quad City Times. Our thanks again to ESPN for the game highlights this week. And thanks, as always, to Scott Docterman and special thanks to Randy Clarahan. We hope you've enjoyed this Hawkeyes Mike podcast, that you'll come back for more, and that you'll subscribe to Hawkeyes Mike podcasts on iTunes. It's all Hawkeyes all the time on HawkeyesMike.com. One passion, many voices. Nice work, everyone. Sharp broadcast. Really good. Everyone on the floor as well. Really a lot of hustle. I liked it. This has been a presentation of Hawkeye's Mike, LLC.